Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Joy Zwillinger, co-founder of Allbirds, the world's most comfortable shoe, according to Time Magazine. His company is growing by leaps and bounds, and they pioneered a truly sustainable shoe that people really love, including me. I've got a pair of them on right now. But all of it almost never happened. Fortunately, a few years ago, Joy had the courage to ask himself one really powerful question. And when he did, he got a healthy sense of urgency that now was the time to start a company and try to make a significant impact on the problems surrounding climate change. That healthy sense of urgency is something we can all use to help us even in our day-to-day lives, to help us figure out what we really want to focus on. I can't wait for you to hear how Joy tapped into it for himself. He also shares some great insights on making business more sustainable, marketing your product differentiators, and lots more. So here's my conversation with my good friend, and soon to be yours, Joy Zwillinger. Joy, thanks so much for being on this show. Oh, David, it's awesome to be here. And I'm so humbled by those words coming from you. We're, we're big fans of you over here at Allbirds and your work and what you share with us at, at that leadership summit. And also just in general, your work around recognition has been very uh, impactful to me personally and, and to our organization. So thanks for having me on. Well, thank you, Joy. I appreciate it. You know, I want to get to your personal story and leadership insights, but first, how's your week going? And can you tell us about a typical week in your life these days? Um, yeah, I, <laughs> my week is starting off with a bang. So I, uh, I, I try to keep a good balanced family and work, even though I, I think being an entrepreneur gets drilled six inches deep into your skull. And then I actually, <laughs> I, I color code my week. So I, I generally have a good perspective of um, yellow being working with external parties and partners that are important. I have an investor. Uh, I have an investor color. I got a media color. I got internal colors. And so I generally have a, a decent split and I try to manage my time. So I'm prioritizing the urgent things that I, that I need to accomplish and also setting aside some really good long-term strategic relationship building time for my week. So it dances. And I will say, the uh, the breadth of activity that I do in a week is is one of the things that keeps me so motivated. Just because it's it's always learning, it's doing something exciting every week. Joy, uh, shifting gears to the business now, you know, tell us the story of how you came up with the Allbirds name. I mean, what the heck is that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I know how do you how do you make a shoe out of sheep and then uh, call your company after a bird? So. Uh, it, there's some sense to it. We were we were thinking about what we stood for as a company, and, and we really knew we believed in innovation based on low carbon intensity, environmentally sensible materials. That's what we were. We weren't a shoe company. We weren't a wool company. We were going to be something, and we aspired to be something that stood for much more, both from like a lifestyle, what we did for people and our customers, um, but also in terms of the leadership and what we stood for. So we were, and, and through this creative process, we were like poking around. We're saying, all right, let's look back to our heritage in New Zealand. What, what you know, what do we got there? And we we um, we asked the simple question: 
what birds were there in New Zealand? <laughs> when, when, when uh, you know, what, what are the birds there? And obviously there's the kiwi bird, but turns out when man first settled in New Zealand, there was all birds, no mammals. And, and that little fact was so, it was so cool and unique because it's such an isolated island, like all birds, there's all birds there. And that's kind of a time when, before people came in and screwed things up. So we thought, uh, we thought we'd take a swing with that one. That is a great swing. And that is so cool. I, I love that. You know, and you start your company, you have huge success, you're selling all birds online. And, and then you, you make a strategic decision to go into the brick and mortar business. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I had the chance to talk to your store managers. Why'd you make that call? Yeah. The, um, I mean, huge success. First of all, let me caveat by saying I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call us that quite yet. Um, but working on it, uh, brick and mortar though, it is, it is so important to our business making an experience that is the best for our customers is, is, Step number one for us and everything flows out of that. And we see it in the data, but we feel it when we walk in the store. It is it is better to come into our store than it is to shop online. Just put it out there. We, we're super convenient. We get you shoes if you order on e-com in three days. Uh, free returns, free shipping, you name it. I mean, it's phenomenal. But if you go into our store, we've built this entire environment around the try-on experience. We have educated our ambassadors and our store leaders in such a way that they can tell you down to the molecule that we're using, uh, the fiber from what kind of sheep. This information that is such a rich experience that our customers absolutely love us. And we use this thing called Net Promoter Score to show how, how favorable our customers think about that experience. And we see it in the 90s in our store, consistently in the 90s, you know, even during a pandemic. It is in the 90s, and it's incredible. So we know that the financial results are going to come from that. And we see that in the financials, too. The marketing efficiency is better. People have more awareness that our brand exists in America. We still today, if you ask 10 people on the street, only one person has heard of Allbirds. We need to get that up, and stores help us do that. And that flows through our whole, whole, uh, our whole business model. So you launch a lot of stores and you get started, you're doing it around the world. You have them in Shanghai, you know, you're doing great locations. And, and then you mentioned the pandemic, you know, how has your business coped during the pandemic and, and how have you had to scramble? I, what a wild time to be um, a leader of uh, any business, but um, retail got hit hard. You know, we shut down our stores on March 13th. We had to understand whether we could, what we were going to do with our, our, our staff, uh, tried to see how we could help out in the community to the extent we could do that. And it was like decision after decision of fairly significant magnitude, uh, falling back on our values uh, and, and trying to make a whole bunch of, of, of these calls that impact a lot of people. And, and um, it was, it was a fair, many of them are very difficult. And the business fortunately ended up faring really well. It was quite uncertain in like the first month. Who the hell knew, knew what was going to happen? Um, and then after that, we got our feet underneath us and, and we started really executing very well. I'm, I'm super proud of the team, how they've, how, they've, um, how they've navigated through this situation. I'll say one of the things now that we're, we're um, you know, cl- closing in on a, on a year through this thing, the impact on culture has been quite profound. It's not just the pandemic, but it's the anxiety and the stress of everyone's personal situation and what they're dealing with outside of work, not just inside of work. 
Um, coupling that with, uh, you know, societal issues uh, around racial unrest and a whole bunch of other uh, issues that have that have we've dealt with um, in, in the last in the last year, not just in this country, but globally. And and, um, you know, it takes a toll. And, and that's that's the thing that that we, Tim and I, have spent a lot of time with. And that's alongside our executives and our HR leader and um, just just thinking about how to build empathy in this environment. How we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take some withdrawals from the culture bank, uh, which we have, uh, and fortunately we we deposited quite a bit beforehand, uh, before we came into the pandemic. But how do we come out of this and 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 regain that thriving culture that we once had, the thriving, pulsing creativity, and all all the good stuff that we need to be successful? Um, I'd say that's the that's the thing that's still. Um, keeps me up. That's the one thing that keeps me up in this pandemic now is, is how do we regain our traction as a culture and, and a fantastic place to work uh, in, in the same way that we have with the same advantage that we had before coming in, before we, we started this thing. As a leader, Joy, what do you think will be the single biggest thing you're going to do to make that happen? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I'd say it's, an, it's a number of things. First of all, it's it's communication has been stressed um, the, probably the highest that I've ever dealt with. The, the crispness and clarity of communication, frequency of communication, vulnerability within that communication um, has been of paramount importance. And we've, we've taken kind of a, we've done a 360 review of ourselves, Tim and I have as co-CEOs and understood how we've navigated through this with our with our colleagues and um, at Allbirds. And, and um, that's been the number one thing to call out. So I want to continue to do that. And I do think, you know, we, 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 every year we, Tim and I have a development plan that we, we write for, for, uh, for ourselves on what we want to do better. And um, coming into the year, uh, and this isn't, this isn't just pandering, but coming into the year, we've written in our development plan that we would um, coming into 2020, uh, we would we would do more uh, on the recognition front, and it goes to communication. But it's about drawing a line from what makes our business good to the behaviors that people are exhibiting. And we we gave out a golden kiwi. Uh, it's like this um, it's this little kiwi bird that's from from New <laughs> Zealand, the wood the wood carving. I love we that. had a goal to give out a hundred, and we ended up not being able to do that um, in the same way we wanted to because of the pandemic constraints. So we shifted it and we, we gave a different award, but we want to pick that back up. So I'd say those two things are probably the, the two things I'm going to stress and continue to, to lean on in terms of making sure that people still feel connected and have the information they need to do their job yeah. really well and, and feel supported throughout this, whatever, whatever else they're going to deal with in 2021. You know, you said your retail business, you improved the execution and, uh, you know, really had, had good results there. How, how did COVID-19 or how is COVID-19 really impacting your online business? Yeah, I mean, positive. Uh, so we've, we've had, we've, we've enjoyed really nice growth um, from that perspective. Uh, and, and some of that is just shifting because people were unable to shop in stores. So that's been good. Um, that's been that's been a bright spot. Um, another bright spot has been you know our category expansion into running shoes. And and what we found is people are at home. They're working from home now. Uh, a lot of our customers are at least. And and they are strapping on running shoes for the first time in a decade. 
And so lo and behold, we can, we can deliver them to their door pretty quickly and giving them a really great value. Um, and lastly, I would say that what has buoyed our e-com business a little bit has been this shift of uh, an acceleration around the idea that values orientation of a brand that you're doing business with is, is increasing. I think people are demanding even more than prior to the pandemic uh, that that brands that are delivering goods stand for something positive on the social issues that they care about, environment being one of the top of the list. And so, you know, I think that's helping as well. Uh, it's hard to pin that down exactly, but we see some of the trends in, in, in data from Google search terms and a whole bunch of other things that would suggest that that is contributing. So you launched this performance shoe. You got another cool name, the Dasher. Okay, you know, what made you think you can compete with the likes of Nike and, uh, you know, with in the running shoe category. What, what the hell made us think we could do any of this from the beginning? So <laughs> yeah, obviously are a little bit um, crazy. Uh, yeah. You know, look, we're, we're, we're chipping away. We're so small um, that we're, what we're trying to do is um, earn the trust slowly, but surely of customers that we can not only deliver a shoe that's really comfortable and fits them well, fits across a couple styles. And now, and now enables them to perform an athletic endeavor without harming their body and makes them perform even better. So we put two and a half years into, into that dasher and we did tons of biomechanical work and, and we tried to come out with a simple, beautiful aesthetic that also delivered on that performance and didn't sacrifice on any of our environmental values. And we, we just did a damn good job. Uh, and I think that focus on, you know, as I've, as I've alluded to before, you know, saying saying yes to one thing for every ninety nine things you say no to, that has that has uh, treated us very well throughout the growth of our business from a management kind of philosophy perspective, and and this is this is no different. And and we launched that, and and it'll come up on the year anniversary of the Dasher, and uh, and and we 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 have not added another performance athletic product into our footwear line because it's really hard, and we wanted to pay it the. Uh, the appropriate amount of of respect that goes into each of these development processes. You know, as I understand it, the the, the Dasher is also groundbreaking. Is the first shoe to carry a a carbon number. What does that mean exactly, Joey? Yeah, the um, it's it's probably the most important initiative we did in 2020. Um, you know, when you ask 10 people on the street what sustainability means, you're going to get 10 different answers, and and we have tried to synthesize what we believe is the most important priority from an environmental perspective into a single number. And this number allows you to understand how much you're contributing to or combating against climate change. And if you can play a role and have the education to make a, a better, more informed decision as a consumer on, on whether you're, you're contributing to that global condition and global issue, we think you're going to understand what you're doing from a sustainability perspective. And if we can synthesize that into something that is so crisp and clear that with, within a second of digesting our information and our product, you can know the answer to that question, we think you'll be in a better spot to answer that question effectively. And we think you will, you will understand the value that we're creating on society 
not to mention that we're making a great product. So it's trying to align our values with our marketing message. And that that's um, that's as simple as I can put it. And we tried to do that in a way that was as clear and crisp as we possibly could. You know, I know Bill Gates is 100% behind carbon footprint uh, products. Is this the bandwagon that everybody's jumping on? And how do you feel about that? Um, I don't think everyone's jumping on it yet. I think Bill Gates is, which is good because he's a powerful ally. Um, but I, I think that um, more and more people will. Uh, I will say what I see, unfortunately, though, is that there's a lot more companies with platitudes that don't have much behind them. And I still see a lot of greenwashing with environmental plans or small steps in a positive direction with grandiose statements about their impact than what I would like to see. And if everyone were to truly jump on the bandwagon and start to, um, you know, hopefully share some of the techniques that we're talking about in terms of really identifying the full end-to-end life cycle of carbon pollution and then owning up to it, paying for offsets in the meantime and trying to race that down to zero, that would be joining the bandwagon. I invite it. I, I, um, I think it would be fantastic. And frankly, in some of the, some of the material innovations we've done, we've open-sourced our technology so that people can share in the material and help get on that bandwagon. So when that happens, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be high-fiving competitors and collaborators alike to, to do it. Fantastic. You know, and, and you know, Joy, I, I always love my conversations with you, and I, I love to get inside of the head of how leaders think. Tell us your thought process for going beyond shoes now and into, into fashion. You know, you, you've got the performance shoe, and now you've got some new products that you've just launched how do you rationalize moving into those uh, different arenas? Yeah, you, you know, we look at what our customers do um, and how they're living. Uh, and, 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 we, you know, there's only, we, we can't do everything, right? We're probably not going to be making a hotel. We're probably not going to be, uh, you know, building things in their houses. So we, we got to think about within a reasonable kind of zone of, of a target area of what we can, what we can accomplish and what we think we can win in where we have material innovation that's core to our company and can create a differentiated product that we know they're going to love, let's explore whether we can do that or not. And, and for us, as I said, when, when I was alluding to um, the origin of the name, never for a second did we think we were a shoe company. Never did it for a second did we think we were a wool company. We have to take these innovations and leverage them in, in many different ways. Oh, let me give you an example because I think it's one of them. It's a... It's a exemplary of what we try to do. We, so we took, we made merino wool shoes. Um, we then made a eucalyptus fiber-based shoe for summer months that was more breathable uh, and, and kind of let, let the air kind of go right in and touch your toes. And, and, and then what we decided was, okay, what if we made a fabric that combined those things? So we called it Trino, which is tree and merino smashed together. We didn't pay anyone too much money for that, so don't worry about that. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then we said, okay, now in a, in a garment, if we take that, we also want to replicate some antimicrobial characteristics to make real performance in some of these some of these items. So we decided we were, we're going to make a T-shirt. Does the world need another T-shirt? Arguably not. But what we did do was we added the waste stream of the crabbing industry. So this the shell of crabs that's left over, you can actually take part of that waste and isolate something called kaidosan. And we took a proprietary process and turned it into yarn. And that creates antimicrobial characteristics. So now we have this T-shirt that's made of Trino, tree, merino, and the waste stream of crabbing industry, crab shells. And not only 
Is that cool from an environmental perspective? But it feels amazing, feels different, delivers amazing performance to your skin, and we can do it all at a very valuable price. And so that's going to just deliver tons of value to our customer. So does the world need another T-shirt? Well, when you have all three of those ingredients, it absolutely does. The world does need it. And people (laughs) love it. And that's the kind of link between innovation, values, and storytelling that we really try to do every time we launch a product. Yeah, I I, I love that. And I got to tell you, I'm going to go online right after this, and I'm going to order all your new products because you're (laughs) you're doing some great stuff. You know, I saw where you raised $100 million in funding in September last year. You know, how do you think about focusing that capital? Yeah, um, it's about what are the big growth factors for the company? <clears throat> and I would say there's there's three things that we focus on. We got to go and continue to invest internationally because as we get scale in different regions like China, Japan, and across Europe, we are going to um, enjoy really good returns from that investment. So that's one. Um, the second thing is in our brick and mortar. So that takes takes cash for us. We're, we're you know, we're going to build more than a dozen stores this year in 2021 uh, and, and more than that in the future. So the cash needs are going to continue to increase there. Uh, and finally, innovation is the third one. And, and building out this ecosystem of, of innovative ideas from various different suppliers and university partners and other, other kind of organizations, it, it's not a small feat. And so most of that is born in the cost of our product, but we do invest quite a significant amount in R&D. Um, so that's the third one. And, and underlying all that, of course, as, I, as I've mentioned, uh, what carried us through the pandemic and allowed us to thrive has been the culture of the organization and the fact that people feel empowered and passionate about what we do uh, and empowered to do great work. Um, and so that's, you know, that takes money. And, and we're building, we're still such, such a small company. Um, we want to continue to invest in it. Otherwise, we know we'll always be a small company, and that's not what we aspire to be. Joy, uh, you know, I, I want to get your perspective on, uh, obviously, a very meaningful topic today. And, and you know, how is the the big and rightful push towards racial equality driving how you lead? I wouldn't say that it has changed how I lead, per se. But what I would say, um, first of all, I fully agree with the framing that this this movement around racial justice in America, um, particularly with Black Americans, is is overdue, uh, and and I'm finding a whole lot of benefits from the movement, and and I think people have been awakened to the idea that diversity is something that is. Um, is is both a moral imperative as well as a business objective and a business outcomes-based um, idea where if you close yourself down and just hear uh, you know the same ideas in an echo chamber, your business is going to be much less uh, successful. And and my business is is a great testament to that. When we're um, when when we look hard in the mirror, you know we're we're underpenetrated in, in certain communities. And, and some of those communities are also underrepresented inside of our organization and our employment base. So, you know, I think if any leader today hasn't um, looked in the mirror and said, we got work to do, um, you know, they've, they're lying to themselves or to somebody else. And so that has been really, I'd say from, from the perspective of how I lead, I feel more empowered to, um, to focus on these issues because I think everyone has, many more people have come around to the concept that this is, uh, this is a moral and a business imperative. And so I think it's, um, 
it's 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 given an opportunity to speak about it more openly uh, and and use these tools uh, for the benefit of the business. So I'm, I'm I'm really encouraged by by what I've seen in this area. Joy, can you tell us about your upbringing? Yeah, sure. So I I, I classify my uh, my upbringing as very fortunate one. I had. I had um, two loving parents. My mom is an immigrant from South Africa. My dad is from New York, both Jewish, both uh, psychology professors at San Francisco State University uh, uh, in the southern part of the city, government jobs. And, um, and they, they taught me the value, I would say, very specifically around education and then broadly around uh, having kind of some kind of a social purpose in the work that you do in your life and making sure that what you do is important to, to a group of people broader than just yourself or your family. And so, uh, my dad was a social activist that was, that was working in freedom of speech and African-American rights. And the purpose that I chose to do was around the environment. And I think that is partially given the fact that uh, that we spent a lot of time outdoors. My dad and I went camping together quite regularly. Is that when you really discovered your passion for the environment and sustainability? That was part of it. Uh, I think when when I really first gravitated to this was uh, was around kind of a couple years after I graduated college, maybe, maybe three or four years after, and uh, in the early 2000s, when I thought that the biggest problem facing our species was climate change. And that if my generation didn't play a major role in solving this problem, that we were, we were screwed, frankly, as, as a species, the earth was probably going to be fine because it would recover after, after not too long of a time, but our species would be in big trouble. And so I, I started thinking about how I could contribute to that, the solution to that problem. And that would be, for for me, something that would be personally rewarding and would contribute substantially to society and give back to, um, you know, what what has given me such great fortune and, and such a great life. How old are you? And that that really kind of ticked off in your head. Probably like twenty four, twenty five, yeah. and I, and I was in I was in I was doing business. I just I didn't really know what business was uh, when I was in college, and and it sounded dynamic and it sounded cool. So I, I just jumped into it and took a generalist job as a consultant. And, and I, that, that was not, uh, particularly exciting to me, but when I, when I caught this bug that the private sector could play a major role in, in affecting environmental issues positively, that started to, to, uh, to give me a little excitement because I didn't see myself doing public policy or being in politics or doing anything like that. And I really loved the dynamism of business. And I started to look at work with small businesses uh, around around that time in my, my early mid-20s. And that got me super excited about the idea that the private sector could do something meaningful to, to make change. Well, you've definitely walked the talk on that, and we're going to get to that. But I, I want to go back to your childhood a little bit. Can, can you tell us a, a, a story of, about your childhood days that would tell us a lot about the kind of person that you, you've become? I'd say that, um, you know, one thing that my dad and I did together uh, every year was we took one big trip, and it always involved the outdoors. And there's usually my sister, myself, and, and my dad, and sometimes there'd be guests that would come along. Um, I remember one time in particular, we went to Yosemite, and we took a, uh, I think it was a six-day 
backpacking trip where we brought into the into the national park everything that we needed for that period of time, including all the food we were going to consume and all the equipment and the tents and whatnot. And we hiked out and every day we, we walked and set up a new campsite. And I'd say one of the principles that really was embedded in me from my dad in particular was this idea of personal agency and that the ability to create uh, change through one individual's creative enterprising activities uh, could be quite profound. And and one of the things he always would say is, hey, if that guy can do it or somebody can do it, why can't I do it with a little hard work and and uh, and perseverance? And so I'd say some of these camping trips when we were out, particularly this one that I'm thinking about, uh, it was it was like an incredibly stormy summer. Uh, and we were out there and there was lightning storms. And I don't know if you know in Yosemite, there's tons of forest yeah. fires that get started by by lightning every year. And this one in particular, we were we were getting soaked, and we were setting up tents uh, in the middle of pouring rains. We had a guy with us that was having some heart issues. We had a friend of mine that was missing his mom, and my dad was just sitting there, kind of like, "Guys, lots of people before us have done this. We can figure this out. We're going to be fine. Let's relax." And I think that was just one of those things where where my dad was quite a character, and and he had this woven through all aspects of his life. This kind of personal agency philosophy, but this was one moment that kind of stood out to me and kind of blended in nature. So that was, that was a nice memory for me. It's a great story. You know, I saw where you started out your career at Goldman Sachs as an analyst. What'd you learn from that experience? Funny. So I, I actually joined as an analyst in their HR group and my parents were psychologists. And so I thought psychology sounded cool, but I like business better. And since the psychology of business is all done in HR, uh, that would be a great place to start. And what I learned was that that was not true and that <laughs> HR is an incredibly important aspect of, of business. Yet the, the kind of HR that I was thinking about was actually done by managers and that how you lead your people uh, at the front line to do the work every day that drives the business from the, the most important impact drivers of top and bottom line. That's where the, the real HR actually happens. Uh, and so I decided leaving that internship that I was not going to uh, immediately return to HR. <laughs> you know, you left Goldman Sachs and you also did some consulting at Deloitte and you worked with a number of di- different companies. What'd you learn from from that consulting experience? A, a huge variety. So what I learned was I went from companies like in the CPG industry where these are buttoned up, polished executives that run processes like wouldn't lose a drop of water out of these things. They're so tight. And they do so because it's cutthroat competition. And it's an industry where tiny little changes of pennies can impact bottom lines dramatically. And and then I went to the garbage industry. And I'm doing negotiations around... Uh, shipping waste between uh, transfer stations and landfills and doing these deals with truckers, third-party truckers at landfill sites amongst the stink and stench. Those guys always said it smells like money. It smelled like something else to me. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm going in there and doing negotiations, very Wild West style of negotiations, which is the way the business was done in that industry. And just, you, you know, furthering my understanding that Business is about about making change, and individuals can make a huge, huge impact. And that not everything is is a is a polished PowerPoint, and that 
uh, you know, you can, you can go out there, get out into the field and make a huge impact with just an individual action. And that was pretty exciting. So I actually gravitated more toward the waste industry style than I did the polished CPG executive style. I think those lessons are true for, uh, could be, could be, could be taught to a lot of executives in a lot of different businesses. You, you then, I understand it, you, you went off and you spent sort of five years in more of a corporate environment with Solazyme and you were the VP of industrial. So what did you learn coming up in a corporate environment that you try to keep top of mind today as you build your own company? So a few things stand out. I, I, that was, that was uh, a big, big growth experience for me. Um, and so I, I, it's hard to even overstate how much I learned there. But a couple things. One is the value of mentorship and giving people a chance that, that have hard work and show great potential. And that when you're at a hot company, uh, it's easy to hire great executives from the outside it almost takes more courage to promote from within and give opportunities to great talent that you have in your organization. And, and, uh, because it's so easy to get the perfect resume out there and just bring them, bring them into the ship instead of, instead of promoting from within. And I I learned that, you know, and part, part of this was that I got the good fortune of, of someone taking a risk and, and having courage to, to give me an opportunity and that person is a great mentor of mine today. Uh, he was the CEO and, and founder of the company. Uh, and, and now I work with him on a bunch of different enterprises that he does now. And so that was an important one. I'd, I'd say the other one that I learned was, was about transparency. And the, the fact that transparency is a very unsung uh, hero of, of great company cultures. And it's also one of the perils of, of places that have gone awry. I think most people know that a lot of people leave their jobs because they have crappy managers. I think less people, fewer people appreciate that, that another significantly contributing factor is when people don't understand how decisions are made at a company and they don't understand what's happening to the company writ large and are kept in a need-to-know basis, so to speak, with just issues directly impacting their part of the organization. That's great. So you had a great mentor at, at this company, Solazyme. You were doing well. What made you leave a really good job and team up with Tim Brown to build the Allbirds brand? And what did you learn about yourself just as you analyzed the opportunity? Because this this couldn't have been a no-brainer. Maybe it was for you. I don't know. Tell us. No, no, no. Not a no-brainer. Uh, uh, so I the, the thing that drove me the most was fear and <laughs> a specific kind of fear. I feared that if I was uh, a 55-year-old guy and I looked back and I hadn't started a business, or I hadn't become an executive at a very early stage company and given it my all to to build something important out of that business, both from a financial and an impact perspective, that I would be disappointed at my life. And that was a perilous fear for me, that I would be <laughs> that 55-year-old guy with like three kids and, and I'd be sitting in mid-level management and I would look back and, and I'd have regrets. And so that fear of future potential regrets, that was what really drove me. And so 
now, now, how do I pick Auburn specifically? That's a different question. Um, and and all, like all good things, it comes from my wife. So my wife <laughs> and and Tim's wife were the the two women who introduced Tim and myself uh, to start thinking about doing a business together. And as we did it, and we started thinking about the potential of the business and what the strategy was, what the purpose of the business was, how we would start, all the capital strategy, all that stuff. Um, one of the things that we committed to was okay. We're going to go from a really, really good salary to a really crappy salary. Uh, and so how long are we going to be able to ride this thing? And what are we going to commit to? And my wife and I sat around the table and we're not great budgeters in general, but we, we tried to like rough ballpark what we spent per year and how much money we were going to lose over the course of two years. And we figured out what the number was and we said, all right. We got two years. It's this amount of money. And that's the investment we're going to make. And we're going to figure it out in two years. And so you better figure, Joey, you better figure this out in two years. We're not going to sit around and do this for five years without, without a good outcome one way or another. And so I would say that that was a, a major contributing factor into how we shaped the early phase of the business from capital formation to every little bit of strategy and tactical detail. And so we raised enough money so that we knew we could create the best brand and make sure that we had sufficient inventory and that we amplified the story that we wanted to tell so that there was no way we would get a false negative or a false positive. False positive being oh, we think it's going great, but we actually didn't have enough inventory. So like, it actually wasn't that good because uh, we actually don't know the true demand or a false negative uh, where we think it didn't work out, uh, but we actually didn't present the world with the right brand or the right product. And so we, we raised enough money to, to make sure we avoided those two situations. And for me, again, fear being the driving factor, uh, I was cool with failing fast. Fortunately, we live in a society in a particular place in the world in the Bay Area that almost celebrates failure. Uh, and and I was definitely cool with wild success. What I was, <laughs> what I was fearful of was mediocrity and just, just in this middle ground, living in a place where every year you were scrapping and you didn't know which way it was going to go. And all of a sudden, again, I found myself 10 years down the road in the same place with, not, with like a half-baked business uh, going nowhere. And I'd, I'd kind of sunk the prime part of my career and my family's life and into a business that wasn't going anywhere. Sure, I would have learned something, but that, that, that drove me uh, to make sure we, we failed quickly and miserably or succeeded wildly. <laughs> you know, I know both you and Tim are, are passionate, convicted leaders. It, was it an immediate match in heaven for you two guys? And how did you make sure you were on the same page? Was that immediately obvious to you? You know, with any relationship like this, there's, there's risk and, you know, 50% of America gets divorced. So I think, I think a hundred percent of those people walk into the marriage thinking it's going to last forever, or at least they say they, they say they do and they take their vows. So, you know, there's, there's risk in, inherent in these kinds of things, as you well know. Um, I, I think, you know, we, fortunately we had a couple good things at our backs. One is that I, I'd known Tim's girlfriend at the time, but now wife quite well, because she was friends with my wife and, and she's a wonderful person. And I figured at least I had that proxy that if she was going to go the distance with this guy, that he was probably, that, that was a, at least one tick in the box in, in his favor. Um, the second thing is that you can immediately sense like Tim is, he's, he's a professional athlete. He rose to be the vice captain of New Zealand at the national team. Uh, at playing in the World Cup for the soccer team for his country in South Africa in 2010. 
and and he's a good looking guy. And yet the second that you meet him, you're struck at how low ego he is and how open to learn he is. And and a partnership, I think, at this kind of competitive dynamic that we have in terms of not not between us, but in our industry. It requires, and the loneliness of, of doing entrepreneurship, you need a partner. And, and fortunately, I think the fact that, that in particular, he's such a low ego guy gave me, gave me the confidence that we could just communicate through stuff and we could make sure to talk through. And we did so from day one is that we just talked. And, you know, I come from a family that is too expressive, uh, Jewish psychologists, uh, that generally find communication and talking to be the answer for everything uh, to, 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 to a degree that could sometimes uh, startle the average person. And, and I think, I think that, um, that is something we take to our business partnership and that we, we just talk through it. We, we carve out time every week to this day to make sure we talk about the issues that we think are our most high impact to our business and our, in our partnership. You launched the business with your website, totally online. Tell us uh, about the biggest challenge you had pioneering what I think some would call the sustainable shoe category. Well, it continues to be a challenge. Uh, and, and this is, I think, the thing that will be our, our it has been our biggest challenge and, and will continue to be, is we are, we are injecting naturally derived materials into a supply chain that has almost exclusively used petroleum-derived synthetics uh, since the early 1970s. And when you're trying to move that fast, you resort to what I would say is unsustainable behavior in terms of material choices that you use. And we're sort of the, the opposite of that. We've tried to slow things down and we take a slow fashion approach where, where we, we try to innovate on materials and put real research and development into our products. There's a lot of challenges. We got to come up with new standards to test the materials when they come into the factory, different quality control mechanisms when it's coming out of the factory and off the line, and, and a whole bunch of things in between even dealing with with issues that the industry really hasn't faced as much around animal welfare and and, and a whole bunch of other issues uh, that that a synthetically manufactured product doesn't doesn't need to contend with. So we think we're doing the right thing, but it, it, it creates some challenges, and supply chain is one of them. But but this idea that we're slowing things down, I think it trickles through a whole bunch of different aspects of our business. You know, you're so passionate about this. Was there ever a time? Though that the, the company did something that was inconsistent with your sustainable efforts, and and if so, how'd you deal with it? Yeah, you know, um, we're still dealing with that because you you can't. Um, we, we've we started this business with the with the belief that perfection would be the enemy of good, and, and what that means for us is we can't be perfect, and while we can strive for perfection every day. We, we can't expect to be perfect and we, we need to acknowledge where our deficiencies are and, and we have many of them. When we're, we're trying to make things all from naturally derived products and we're also trying to be the lowest carbon footprint product on the, on, in the industry and we're trying to compete with companies who have been using synthetic materials for 50 years. And those have pent up some expectations in the minds of consumers that we, like it or not, we have to compete with. Like, so, what do you mean by that, Joey? So um, a good example is uh, just simply with wool specifically. So we started the company with merino wool. And merino wool, and we put it into a sneaker that f- most of the products that would you'd say would be competitive with us 
use plastic, polyester usually, sometimes nylon. And, and that polyester has a particular kind of um, stretch to it, particular kind of durability, and it, uh, it performs a specific way. We put in merino wool, and this is like putting a cashmere sweater on your foot. It's like it feels more comfortable than, than you could imagine until you slip your feet into them with no socks. Um, yet, at some point, there's a little bit of different stretch to them. There's a little bit of different characteristics of this. And also, we need to, to match some of the performance characteristics, we need to put in some component of, of a synthetic to a certain degree. How much of that we put in, we can question. How much is the cost difference? What's the carbon impact? And we have to weigh those things every day. Um, and, and we do so. You know, another example, we, we, had, we had laces that we historically have been making from polyester. Uh, and that was something that we did not want to do at all. And at one point, we finally pushed our factory hard enough where they said, all right, fine, here, we finally found recycled plastic bottles to turn that into the laces that you guys like and you want to use. Uh, it costs you about three times as much. Um, so like, that's the best we could do. What do you think? And within literally less than a day, we had concluded that that was a no-brainer. We needed to move to the, the recycled plastic bottles. And that was one of those moments where it was like, great, finally we've overcome one of those things that we felt was a deficiency. It's still not perfect, frankly. It's still plastic, even, even being it recycled. Um, and it's just one thing that we need to keep working on. And maybe the last example, it's one of the ones I'm, I'm probably the most proud of, but also shows one of the weaknesses that we had when we started. We launched a product. We thought it was great. You mentioned Time Magazine called it the most comfortable shoe in the world, so it's a pretty damn good start. The bottom unit was made from traditional uh, foam that's used in the sneaker industry. We worked for three years to find a solution to making that foam out of a natural material instead of using petroleum, which is what the industry typically resorts to. And we worked with a, a Brazilian company called Brascom. We convinced them to invest a number of millions of dollars to take a waste stream of sugar cane and convert that into uh, into this foam material. So another way to the technical word would be EVA is the foam, and we called it green EVA. And what we then did with that material was we made it into this incredibly soft cushion midsole that was the bottom unit of the shoe, and and we called it sweet foam. And finally. We had overcome the biggest component in our shoe that was not from a naturally derived source and was really impeding our way of what we believe was living our values through our products and our brand. And, and we overcame that and we actually open sourced that ingredient to the whole industry to use. Uh, and, and that's been turning one of our biggest deficiencies into our one of our biggest successes, frankly. Well, you know, I, I never really like to talk about my business, but we had a patented uh, uh, secret 11 herbs and uh, spices that we didn't open up the competition. You know, what made you open it up the competition and be so free to everybody else? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I think there's certain things we, we won't share. Uh, and I, if we had our own special uh, 11 spice mixture, which is, you know, maybe we have some analogy in, the, in some of our textile science that we've done. We're not going to just give that away. Um, but, but I would say that, that solving the problem of climate change is going to take collective action. It's going to take collective action uh, between the private sector and the public sector. And it's also going to take collective action within the private sector. And so we, we found that this was a really interesting opportunity to, to, do that collective action within the private sector for two reasons. One, 
if you use our material instead of the traditional petroleum derived, you are actually sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere instead of instead of just simply emitting it. In the in the production process of this material, it actually sucks net carbon out of the atmosphere, hmm. which is so cool that if everyone did that in the footwear industry, we would be saving millions and millions and millions of tons of of carbon dioxide that, uh, from being emitted into the environment. So that's just a win for the planet. The second is the the more companies who buy this material and do whatever they want to do with this material, the lower the cost is going to be. And we'll make sure that we get the lowest cost at all times from our supplier for being the pioneer with them and starting it. But that that cost accrual and that, that benefit's going to, going to come to us from a financial perspective. And so there's this pragmatic view from a financial perspective and an altruistic view for the planet. And that, that made it such a great recipe to share it that we wanted to make sure that, that everyone who wanted it could have it. So you went up this old line industry that wasn't environmentally conscious. You really disrupted the mindset. You had to have people telling you all along the way that, hey, you're crazy. You know, you can't do this. What advice can you give to, to people when they hear those, you, you can't do this, that phrase? You know, sometimes people who tell you you shouldn't do things are right. and Sometimes they're wrong. <laughs> Uh, I can remember probably the two worst conversations I've had at Allbirds have been from two um, former executives from very large companies uh, that had had played a major role in creating the industry as it stands today. And they both said, there's no way this is going to be successful. Um, A, because no one's done it before and B, because it's just dumb. And, (laughs) and, uh, and, they're they're disheartening because you know those conversations are with people who know a lot about your industry and they know a lot more than you'll almost ever know in what they've lived in their industry uh, and so so how could you just ignore that but you got to put it into context and I think I I think of myself as a network learner where when I have a hard problem that I don't know the answer to I I generally go out to the the five to ten smartest people I know who know something about this issue, and I ask them the same question, and I get their advice. And then I try to put context around where those people are coming from and what's smartest with the idiosyncrasies of our business, and then come up with an answer or a solution that we think will work for us. And so that, you know, I, I would say in those in those situations, I take those as data points and I try not to get disheartened. And I think, you know, entrepreneurship, you run into these situations, you run into a lot more no's than you run into yeses, and and you can't be disheartened by those. And if you would be, you'd probably stop getting out of bed every morning. So uh, it's no, no no point no point in letting them letting them get you down too much. You know, when you and Tim started, you you said you really wanted to get out there and really, you know, not tip your toe in the water. You, your first purchase order was ten thousand pairs of shoes. You had and basically made in seven months. It usually takes you know twice that amount of time to get it done. You had amazing sense of urgency. Now I understand it better from your wife. You better get your ass in gear and get this company going. But, <laughs> exactly. But have you been able to keep that sense of urgency as a company as, you, as you've grown? Yeah. I mean, I think we've tried not to take any risks from that point forward that could, that could be catastrophic risks to the company. Um, but on the micro level, we try to take much more courageous bets. And I'd say, you know, I've, we've had moments where I have felt our organization has slowed down and, and thinks that we're now entitled to selling shoes every day instead of having to go work every day and go sell those shoes. And, and those, those moments scare the hell out of me. And, and I think when, when I sense those, I try to re-inject a sense of urgency 
get rid of all that complacency and and try to to push people to be courageous. And you know, we're in a moment like that today. Today, we are in a situation where big brands and big companies realize that consumers care about sustainability. And so everybody is now starting to talk about sustainability and they they define it however they think is most prudent for their marketing benefit. And and uh I'm I'm it's interesting because this change has happened much more quickly than I would have ever expected it to have happened. And if you see a brand come out with a new product in three years that's not from, if they're using plastic, that it's not recycled plastic, I would be absolutely shocked. Everyone is going to be doing the bare minimum from this point forward because they recognize that consumers are demanding it. So how do we stand out? And how do we stand out and, and make our statements clear that the way that we're doing things are with the authenticity that's required to really solve this problem. That's something that takes courageous action. And I think we're going to need to be more bold in our marketing and in the statements that we make publicly to combat what will otherwise be an incredibly noisy room. And so how do we continue to stand out when that, when that has kind of caught up with what we, what we originally set out to accomplish? Yeah, you have a lot of people trying to copycat what you do. I mean, lot, you know, Am- Amazon developed a shoe, then you basically took them on directly. You know, how emotional, you know, you're the founder that you, you created this stuff. You got Amazon basically ripping you off. Uh, how do you feel about that? How do you handle that emotionally? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a competitor. So I, I look at it as I try to win. And, and uh, we're, I, I think that we're trying to win the right game, first of all. And so I'm unabashedly, I'm unabashedly comfortable with the idea that if we win, we're doing something good. And so I should try to win. And so I look at that situation and, and I don't, I don't get upset. I get, uh, I, I get competitive and I just try to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And, you know, in the case of Amazon, they're doing it because they had so many people type all birds into their amazon.com search bar that I know we're onto something good and they sensed, <laughs> they sensed it too. So that's, that's a good thing. Uh, and, and then how they actually did it. They did it in a crappy way. They, we open sourced that foam material. They didn't even use it. They just try to copy the look and try to siphon off demand that we've created for this new category of footwear. And, and, you know, how do we beat them at that? And so we, we decided that, despite the fact that they are uh, one of the most valuable companies in the world, if not the most, depending on the day, that we'll just go at them and, and take them on and, and see, if we can, uh, see if we can use uh, the authenticity of our message to, to win the day. You know, we're about to wrap this up. I always like to have a little fun with a little lightning round Q&A here. So what, what three words would best describe you? Uh, urgent. Bombastic. High energy. What's your biggest pet peeve? Lethargy. Share a random fact about you that few people would know. I have two colors of hair, and I was born with those two colors of hair. And while it's thinning a little bit at the moment, uh, you can still see it. And my nickname was Skunk growing up as a result. (laughs) If you could trade places for one day with anyone in the world, who would it be? Probably... Probably uh, Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> I I wanted to be a pro soccer player, like like a lot of kids, and and I even like when I sign legal contracts now, it's still the signature that I developed when I was like eight years old 
because I wanted to make sure I had a cool-looking signature when I signed my, my, a soccer ball when some kid comes up to me after my professional soccer game. Well, turned out that, that didn't end up happening, but uh, T- Tim's, Tim's my partner in that one, so he can take, he can take the glory. So, Joey, what, what three bits of advice would you give to aspiring leaders? Aspiring leaders, let's see. I would say um, from a management perspective, just be yourself. Don't try to be the manager you think you should be. Um, from a leadership perspective, I would say when speaking about vision, make sure that you you draw a link between purpose and profit and vice versa. And having that connection be fully aligned is is one of the most powerful weapons in motivating a company and 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 maintaining relevance with consumers. Uh, and let's see. Finally, from an individual perspective, I would just say always realize that the rules of the game can be changed. And that's one of the, the most fun things about business in my perspective is, you know, without breaking any laws or regulations or anything like that, not encouraging that, uh, understand that, that rules are, are there, but that they're meant to be broken and that they're meant to be changed. And, and business is about dynamic leaders and individuals can, can do almost anything to, to make a huge and different and positive outcome. You know, the thing that I really admire about you and your company is you're so authentic. I mean, you're, you're definitely the, the real deal. You're a real deal as a brand and you're a real deal as a person. And I always talk about the shadow of the leader. It's clear that you cast a tremendous shadow and your entire company is passionate about what they do. And I want to thank you for taking the time for being on this show, Joy. You're, you're an amazing guy. Well, thank you. Humbled once again to end the conversation just like I started. Thank you, David. Really appreciate that. Well, Joy is just a fantastic example of that expression that we can do good by doing well. And while there are no easy answers when it comes to climate change, Joy just knew he had to go after his big dream of starting a company that made sustainability a true priority. But it all started with the question he asked himself, what will I regret not doing? It's such a powerful question. And this week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to ask yourself the same thing. Imagine you're looking back on today or this week or your entire career if you're feeling really brave, ask yourself, what will you regret not doing? When we answer that question, we tap into a healthy sense of urgency that reminds us our days, our weeks, our careers are finite, and we have to make the most of them. Asking that question was the kickstart Joey needed to go out and start Allbirds, and it can help you clarify what's really important to you whether it's as simple as trying to prioritize your daily schedule or as significant as making a major career move. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders have a healthy sense of urgency. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.